uh, you know, when I think of the growth of Yeti or when I think of the growth of Tim Hortons, which is a donut chain here in Canada, or, or, or the growth of Gro GoPro, you know, GoPro is being sold on the beaches out of the back of the guy's car, you know, to surfers. It's like, you have to really, and there's a great podcast to pimp to a competitor of yours, I guess, how I built this with Guy Raz, but the, the, the faster you can get to the origin story, the more you'll be inspired by, oh, I, I, it's not about how much money do you have. It's not about how big you are. It's about what's your desire? What are you actually building? And if you're just trying to build an income for yourself, or if you're just trying to build a company, you're probably talented enough to do it. <laughs> the problem is people don't fall short because they suck at their job. People fall short because they suck at dreaming big enough. They don't, their ambitions aren't high enough. And it's like, you know, uh, Richard Branson wasn't out just to, you know, sell more record, you know, records at the time, right? Or Jeff Bezos wasn't out just to sell books online. Like if you really look at their desires, they, they dared to dream impossibly big. And then they said, if I'm going to accomplish that, I need to enlist people. I mean, Elon Musk is such a great example. Yes, he's a billionaire, but he doesn't ever talk about the myopics of the business. He's, he's daring us to dream and imagine a world that we don't yet live in. And that's the foundation of emotional buy-in, which is foundational to having a cult brand versus just a company. What comes to mind when you hear the words cult following? Perhaps businesses such as GoPro, Vans, John Deere, Harley-Davidson, Trader Joe's, Publix, Chick-fil-A, and of course the big one, Apple. Companies who have their act together, they know who they are, the world knows who they are, and it just seems like they have way more raving fans than they have customers. Welcome back to the Entrepreneur Adventure Podcast, where we give you the tools to climb higher and faster than ever before. And today we are talking about branding. Please welcome our guest, Mr. Chris Nealon, CEO of Cult Collective, a premier marketing agency who helps his clients reimagine and redefine how they engage their consumers and their employees. He definitely has a thing or two to share with us about how to create a cult following in your business. And with that, I'll turn it over to our hosts, Josh Milton and Chad Brown. Hey friends, welcome back to the Entrepreneur Adventure. We have an awesome episode today. Our guests gonna teach you about growing a brand. Not only growing a brand, how to have a cult around your brand and growing it just beyond the business side. How do you get your customers to buy in and you know our guest today uh he's worked with or worked for names you may recognize john deere which is a favorite of yours right john uh, deere that's right i mean yeah, that's, love that's, that one. you know grew up wearing the clothes uh, i was bought in home depot home Harley depot Davidson. is where I mean, we went for fun as kids it's <laughs> that's like what right. y'all want to do so we're going to home <laughs> depot man let's do it that's right best buy and and my personal favorite uh the one i could not live without i'm so bought in keurig i mean and it uh, supports my my entrepreneurial journey every single day. So, with that being said, welcome Chris Nealon, CEO, author, speaker. Welcome to the podcast, man. How are you? I'm excellent. Great to be here, Chad and Josh, and uh, look forward to uh, getting into it with you guys. Yeah, it's gonna be good, uh, man. This is like uh, where I want. Uh, 
have the one-on-one consulting and the advantage of being an, an entrepreneur adventure podcast host is this is like my dream. We get to talk about branding and marketing and all the things in a, as an accountant I know nothing about. And <laughs> I'm excited to learn, man. Um, so I appreciate you joining us. Uh, let's get started. Tell us a little bit. Uh, how did you become an entrepreneur? How did your journey begin? Was marketing and branding something that always appealed to you? Uh, for sure, marketing, I think, always appealed to me, mostly because I think my dad um, enjoyed his job. And I, as a child, uh, was like, that seemed fun. Now, when you're a kid, fun was, he always was seen to be traveling to some big city. And he went to a lot of trade shows and came home with a lot of the tchotchkes that you pick up at trade show booths <laughs> that would be handed out to the kids. And so my, my bar for fun wasn't very high. I've brought but, so much hand sanitizer home to my kids over the last five years. <laughs> yeah, too, stress know. balls and yes. keychains. And I just, you know, as I got older, I just, I think subconsciously what I discovered was that uh, there are people who endure their job so that they then can have in a nice life. You know, they, they then go to the bowling alley or the bar afterwards. And I never wanted to be the guy that was going to wake up every day dreading going to work. And so my dad was a good role model uh, in that way. But at the same time, he was a bad role model in that he always worked for big pharmaceutical companies. We lived in an upper middle class, you know, white collar neighborhood where everybody I knew kind of worked for a corporation uh, so entrepreneurship, frankly, was like the furthest thing from my mind. Um, I, I, I probably had a little bit of entrepreneurship in my DNA in the sense like many kids my age, we went out and had like a, you know, a lawn mowing business in the summer to make some money. But um, I never, I mean, I went through not only college, graduate school before ever even thinking that entrepreneurship was a viable option. Like I, yeah. I kind of... Um, I just was brainwashed into thinking that, you know, what good looked like was getting a job at the biggest fortune 500 company that would hire you, which is why I went to John Deere right out of grad school. And it was only after I started to associate with entrepreneurs that I realized they had stuff that I didn't, which was a certain uh, control over their time, a certain uh, enthusiasm about what they were building, a bigger purpose. Um, you know, I loved my time at Home Depot as an example, but like nothing I really did was going to make or break that company. I was in a, I was a cog in a much bigger machine and I found people that were more stimulated doing their own thing. Um, and then through a, a series of crazy events, a, a headhunter contacted me while living in Dallas about an opportunity to be my own boss and take over an ad agency in Calgary, Alberta. And I remember thinking, I probably don't have the courage to quit my job and to start a business in my basement and not take a paycheck for a year and a half and to live on ramen noodles and to do all the crazy things I always thought entrepreneurs did. But I did have enough courage to relocate my family, go to a different country and take over a business and see if we could make it bigger. Um, I, I think if I'm being honest, I probably failed at that as well, because that, that business that I took over uh, basically was run into the ground within the first 18 to 24 months. And then that's when my baptism by fire happened. That's when I had to decide, okay, I've gotten a taste of being my own boss. I've been at ad agencies. I've been at corporations. 
what do I want to do? And then I said, I'm going to build my own thing. And uh, thank goodness I had a remarkable business partner and a remarkable wife and um, some supporting people around me. And uh, I think for the past 10 years, I can now say I've actually been on a legitimate entrepreneurial journey of building things from scratch, risking you know, uh, my capital and my reputation to do it. And uh, I, I could never go back. Now I'm 100% converted. And the idea of going into a corporation again and having a, a normal job is as distasteful to me as, as uh, asparagus. <laughs> it's so funny you say that though because really those who those of us who have been on the entrepreneur adventure long enough to to feel like you've made it at least a little bit you know made it maybe to the first summit to the first peak if you will there is that like i wonder if i get it could i ever go back to working for somebody else i'm like no way there's not, no way i could chance. do it, it you know no really way. like just or, having somebody else tell me when, or when, the, when to show up I, the ugh. other side is man do i have the energy if i had to start over do I have the energy yeah. to go through it all again? And man, you talk about courage. You quit your job and moved to a different country and, yeah. and had no experience in uh, running your own business or, or uh, any track record of uh, of how that was going to turn out for you and your family. That's amazing, man. That's uh, uber in, impressive that, that you were willing to do that. And it kind of got you started on that path. And uh, awesome to hear. Uh, that's, a, that's definitely a story that that resonates I know with a lot of entrepreneurs of starting different ways and and for us as business partners uh it was just as random it's a uh, we were having lunch and and shook hands and decided to partner up one day and and the rest is history here we are 12 13 years later so when you partnered up so Chris you said you partnered basically from the beginning when uh once my agency in Canada was beginning to fail and I was starting to look at, well, what do I do? Do I try to rebuild that or do I go do my own thing and start something completely different? Um, I, I, I think I was self-aware enough to realize that my, I, I had some strengths, but I had some really obvious weaknesses as well. And, I, and I'd argue most. I know very few entrepreneurs that pulled it off independently. When, when I advise people, um, I almost always say find a partner and find a partner that's your complement, not not somebody that's just compatible with you because sometimes I think we make that mistake as well. It's like, let's go find somebody we like or somebody that uh, shares some of our strengths. And I think like a good marriage, you need to find somebody that uh, is more your, the yin to your yang. And um, so, yeah, that, I think together we were able to build what we've now built. And I, I, I wouldn't give myself a, a 1% chance of pulling it off on my own. <laughs> It's interesting you say that. I would that. give Chad a 1% chance of <laughs> succeeding on his own too, Chris. So you guys are really going to hit it off here today. <laughs> it's funny you say that and you talk about partnerships in that way because I, I never realized it I, until here in the last couple of years of how common of an opinion and approach that is. I know for me, I'm a partnership guy. I love partnerships. It's it's somebody to celebrate with. It's somebody to to help work through the challenges and, and the tough times because we all have them no matter what level we are in business. Uh, but I, as I became more educated in a lot of the entrepreneurial programs out there and uh, funding opportunities and uh, venture capital uh, uh, partnerships and things, a lot of those require you to have a co-founder or a partner to even be a part of their programs. And so uh, I'm starting to see that here in the last two years over and over and over in that opinion to develop that 
businesses are just tremendously better and easier to grow and build as a partnership as opposed to an individual solopreneur. Yeah, I think those bad partnership stories scare some people away because there are, you know, there's out there plenty of bad partnership stories, but there's just as many bad solopreneur stories, you know, where you're just the one person owner. So it's like, it's like, it's like being a parent, right? I mean, unfortunately, through death or divorce or whatever, a lot of people are single parents, but it, they, the, the single best chance of that kid having the most success is to have a mom and a dad or at least two parents at home or, or you know, in the picture. And so I don't think anybody would look at a struggling single mom with three kids and say, oh, that's, that's preferred. <laughs> you know, like God bless her for, for enduring. But I, I think that, um, you know, it takes, it takes a, if it takes a village to raise a child, it certainly takes a village to raise a company. And, um, I, you know, yes, I think there's a lot of divorce stories, bad divorce stories, but that doesn't prevent people from saying, I'm never going to get married. They still, it's still an ambition that has some worthy outcomes to it. That's an, that's an awesome analogy because my wife, Lauren calls Josh, my work wife. So <laughs> she's like, are you on the phone with your work wife again? She's like, I think you talk to him more than you talk to me. Yeah. So yeah, I like that comparison. <laughs> and I feel like my more of the work, the work husband, but whatever, uh, <laughs> going on to, you, so <laughs> not even going to go there. <laughs> Chris, when you when you decided to create your own company, was Cult Collective the name of your first entity? Like your right, so it was. What made you choose the name? Um, we we knew what we didn't want, which was we didn't want to be an ad agency that was focused on acquisition and getting new customers uh, for two reasons. One, it was a very crowded space. There's thousands, hundreds of thousands of consultants and and agencies that claim to help you get customers. And two, we didn't think that was actually the hard part. Getting somebody to try you isn't actually that difficult. Getting somebody to um, fall in love with you enough to continue to purchase and then to refer and to go get a bunch of others to start shopping you was a much better goal. And there weren't a lot of people that seemed to know how to do that. It's like almost like that was like, well, I hope that happens. Good luck. But it's like, no, that's not luck or hope. That's business strategy. That's marketing strategy. Like you can actually bake that into the DNA of your business. Um, and so we were trying to find a way. And at the time, this was in 2010, there's also a lot of like loyalty marketing agencies and consultants. But again, they were more like practitioners of loyalty programs, how to create card-based or points-based systems. And we didn't, we're not actually not that big of a fan of those uh, methods. And so cult was a way of being very descriptive. Like, let's talk about what we're talking about here. Somebody that is so uh, irrationally enthusiastic about what you're doing, that they're more than a customer. They're like a cult-like follower. And we had seen that with, you know, Star Trek had Trekkies, these cult-like followers, and Tesla has these cult-like followers, and Lululemon has these so we were like, why don't we just use that word? Like I mean, people, you know, movies like Rocky Horror Picture Show is this cult like follower. And so we we're like, let's just say, uh, if you want to have a cult, we, we tell people, if you want to have customers, go hire an agency. But if you want to have cult like followers, you got to work with uh, cult because we're, we literally wrote the book on how to do it. That's good marketing, by the way. <laughs> That's amazing. I'm like, oh I'm in. How do I do that? Yeah. <laughs> Man, my customers like what we do, and, and it's great. It is a... I don't think they're running around the streets like no, uh, yeah. yelling off of the mountaintops how great we are. It's funny, though, because you think, like, there's some brands that are, you would think they, it's easier to be attracted to one brand, like to some brands versus others. For instance, we, me and Chad, on a commercial cleaning company, 
together. Like nobody for the most part can get over the top excited about who their commercial cleaning company is. But on the other side of it, there are people that put a sticker on the back of their car for the type of computer that they use. Yeah. Right. That's right. And, and with Apple, I mean, it's just that's the type of cooler they use. Just as amazing I mean, a, yeah. to see that the, the Apple story to me is just such a big one when it comes to that cult following because of, again, they're not offering discounts or sales incentives or anything. And people are always lining up to get the next product, which isn't even fully developed yet. They're like, hey, here's the, br- it's half done. You guys buy it, stand in line to buy it, pay over, overpay for it. And tell us what's wrong with it. It's just an amazing thing to think about, like that Apple sticker that's all over the place and how much of a cult following they created with, um, I guess, their their headphones when it started with the iPod. And I don't know if that's an example you guys use or not. And I know you threw some out with uh, some of the other companies that you mentioned. But what are the ones that did you guys like? Did you go study these companies, Chris? Like, how, what is it that you were able to gather from a knowledge base that you could then teach? Who were you studying to find out these principles of, of developing a cult following? So we had, we got so lucky in the sense that we started with, well, three things. One, we, there was a book out. I like to say we wrote the book. That's not entirely true. In 2005, a guy named Douglas Atkin uh, wrote a book called The Culting of Brands. And it was the first time I'd ever seen the metaphor. And he literally looked at uh, everything from legitimate cults to fraternities to like the United States Marine Corps and, and looked at these organizations <clears throat> I'm a, uh, I go to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and people oftentimes will associate Mormons as a cult. And so I was always kind of a fascinated, like, what is it about that faith that doesn't, that, that, that kind of gets that moniker? <clears throat> so I was always sort of fascinated with that idea of evangelism and recruitment and, and passion. So that planted the seed. And then when we were building cult, our agency, we were sort of advised to, to have a very, very narrow positioning and to like build for somebody in particular. <clears throat> and so we chose Harley Davidson as like, okay, that represents a brand that people are irrational about. They, you know, they tattoo it on their body. They, they, they are premium price point. They've been around for a hundred years. Um, so if we could create something that would allow Harley to say, I want to work with them, then we would be cooking with gas. And serendipitously, I don't know if you subscribe to the secret or intention or the universe, but within three weeks, Harley Davidson called us and, and uh, hired us as our first client, which was amazing. <laughs> and then um, also the, the last client that we had before we, uh, our ad agency went out of business and, be, and kind of started this journey of building cult. It was, a, it was a Canadian retailer that had invented a new um, athletic wear for women. And they, and they gave us a huge budget, tens of millions of dollars, a pretty good product, uh, the ability to discount the hell out of it. And we could not steal women away from Lululemon, who was not doing an ounce of advertising or d- discounting and was uh, 30% more expensive. So it was this wonderful combination of this book planting the seed of there's a thing out there that cults do that businesses should do. Um, Harley Davidson has achieved it and learning how they did what they did and trying to go after a cult brand with traditional methods and failing at it that made us say, what is going on here? Why, what is the, what's the ideology? What are the belief systems? What are the behaviors? And that started uh, a 10 year journey now of looking under the hood and writing the book was the beginning part was the, was the Trojan horse in to talk to these brands. 
Uh, we then created an event called The Gathering where brands would actually be nominated. And, they, and that gave us an opportunity to talk to hundreds of them every year to try to find the best at that point. And I just can, and then, and then it was simply a matter of find the patterns. What are these brands doing that's similar that their mediocre competitors aren't doing that's similar and find those, uh, those deltas. And that's become the basis for our business now. So two quick questions for you, Chris. One is what is the name of the book that you guys wrote? Uh, our book is called Fix, Break the Addictions That Are Killing Brands. And so that, that uses this metaphor of getting your drug fix because we think most businesses are addicted to paid media. So we got to rip that heroin out of their arm and get them healthy again. Awesome. All right. what second, was your second question? Second question is this. And this one was inspired by what you were just saying. So I wouldn't pre-plan this question at all. But I hear a lot about, and in our culture today, there's a big push toward all companies having cultural diversity. Like, hey, you need diversity programs. You need to make sure you're a diverse company. You're you just diversity, diversity, diversity. You need a diversity training program. So much about diversity. But when I hear the word cult, it doesn't make me think diversity. Typically, people think of the word cult and they think people somewhat looking the same, acting the same, dressing the same. Like, there's a certain set of I say rules for lack of a better word, but um, assumptions that people make. There are certain guidelines that they follow. Can you just speak to that real quick? And I know that word's a little bit of a trigger word, uh, but so is cult. You know, come on. Yeah, <laughs> as absolutely. far as diver cultural diversity goes or diversity programs go, just love to hear your opinion on that as far as in when you're building, you know, cultivating a cult brand culture, where's the place for diversity because i have mixed emotions on that i'm like i get what we're saying but at the same time i'm like i wanted to have in my company to some degree a very specific culture that attracts a very specific audience and i'd love to know too maybe your thoughts on harley davidson i think harley davidson i don't see like like i see people trying to fit a certain i see the doctor with the leather jacket yeah. you know what i'm saying like trying to, to assimilate or fit into what he feels like or thinks like this is what Harley Davidson writers do. So yeah, man, any input, advice, counsel, content you want to create for us right now based on my uh, vomiting that question at you would be great. Yeah, well, I think it's, I think you should first, I, I, I think it's a great question because we got to unpack two elements of it. First, who works for you in introducing diversity and whether that's ethnic diversity or just diversity of thought is vital. And you can look inside Harley Davidson or any of these cult brands and find a, a wonderful display of different cultures, beliefs, attitudes, sexual orientations, religions, whatever. So um, I, I think that that should be wildly encouraged. Having your target audience defined, uh, the more narrow, the better. I think it's perfectly appropriate for Harley Davidson to have sort of that easy rider image of the 50-year-old and the chaps and maybe the midlife crisis and the very masculine. Like, I don't think that they should try to dilute their aspirational customer because it's a make-believe person. It's a, it's, a, it's a mindset. So the way I'd answer, you mentioned Apple earlier, and certainly Apple's one of the top five cult brands of all time. When we started and we stopped being an ad agency and we became what we call an engagement firm focused on cult brand principles, we killed our media department. Because we think paid media contributes to a major problem in how people target because paid media is bought and sold on demographics. I need 18 to 35 year old white males. I need 55 to 65 year old you know, women with children, whatever it might be. And demographics are the least interesting thing 
about the appeal of your brand. So we paid an artist to draw a mosaic of different people. And they used this art technique where they never lifted their pencil from the canvas. And so they do these lines. And it's kind of, it's kind of like trying to draw a picture of a crowd using an Etch-a-Sketch. Like you, you can't pick your pencil up. And what I loved about it was it was women, men, children, white, black, like it was this mosaic of people, but there was one through line. There was one common thing. It was that, that line. And it's not based on demographic. It's this ad, it's a psychographic or this belief or this value. Because when you think of Apple's customer, you don't think of a demographic. There's eight-year-olds in school that want an iPad. There's 50-year-olds in, you know, in uh, white-collar professionals. There's designers. There's the, cre- the people that are attracted to Apple are attracted to that think different mentality, that anti-establishment, that non-Microsoft kind of, you know, I'm a Mac, he's a PC kind of thing. When you think of an Apple customer, other than maybe a degree of affluence, because Apple is two and a half times more expensive than uh, its biggest competitor, you don't really think of uh, an age, a demographic, a social, you know, a sexual orientation, et cetera. So I, I would I would argue that marketers get inappropriately distracted by thinking that diversity equals, um, you know, observable traits in their target audience, as opposed to an ambition, uh, a, a value that I aspire to, and that's what, that's why it transcends. It's not just this functional thing. I wear Levi's because it represents a sense of freedom, rebellion, and Americana that Guess or Jordache don't. And how old am I that Guess and Jordache were the next two competitive brands of jeans? I don't know jeans very well, right? But uh, so yeah, I, I so don't mistake the two. That's the punchline. Corporations should should have ambitious diversity and inclusion programs in terms of their hiring practices. But cult brands should have very specific target audiences and not try to dilute who those target audiences are in a quest to become more politically correct. So, so in a lot of these cases here, we're talking about well established huge corporations. I know a lot of our audience are young entrepreneurs. They're small to mid-sized businesses. When we start talking about cult branding, getting away from traditional marketing, really getting away from, I want all the customers to know, I don't want all the customers. I want one very specific customer. Where does a business uh, at a small to mid-sized level start this process? How how do they begin the journey of saying, okay, I want to build a cult following. I want to build this brand that that people rave about and want to be a part of outside of just buying the product. Uh, any advice or uh, yeah. strategies of step number one there? Yeah, thank you. I mean, that is the million dollar question, Chad, because we're, you know, we bring, we do this event now called The Gathering and every year, like this year, we just had Amazon, Netflix, Peloton, um, Shopify, like these, you know, these massive brands, Barbie. Um, I, I get disappointed when small businesses and entrepreneurs say, well, what can I learn from them? They're billion dollar behemoths. I'm like, shame on you and your lack of creativity because every one of those businesses started in the back of somebody's car in somebody's garage. And it wasn't like they got big and then decided to become cult-like and awesome. It's they got big because they already embraced the cult brand principles and particularly small people, small companies um, 
they'll, they'll sometimes like pine for once I get to X amount of revenue, then yes. I can do marketing better that's, or then yes. I can buy that commercial. It's like, It'll no, all exactly, get easy. All that, get better. That, that's exactly backwards. Like you should embrace the fact that the cult brands spend less on advertising than their mediocre peers. You should embrace the fact that you don't need, uh, you know, when I think of the growth of Yeti or when I think of the growth of Tim Hortons, which is a donut chain here in Canada, or, or, or the growth of Gro GoPro, you know, GoPro is being sold on the beaches out of the back of the guy's car, you know, to surfers. It's like, you have to really, and there's a great podcast to pimp to a competitor of yours, I guess, how I built this with Guy Raz. Oh yeah. I love that podcast. The, the, the yeah. faster you can get to the origin story, the more you'll be inspired by, Oh, I, I, it's not about how much money do you have? It's not about how big you are. It's about what's your desire. What are you actually building? And if you're just trying to build an income for yourself, or if you're just trying to build a company, you're probably talented enough to do it. <laughs> the problem is people don't fall short because they suck at their job. People fall short because they suck at dreaming big enough. They don't, their ambitions aren't high enough. And it's like, you know, Richard Branson wasn't out just to, you know, sell more record, you know, records at the time, right? Or, Jeff Bezos wasn't out just to sell books online. Like if you really look at their desires, they, they dared to dream impossibly big. And then they said, if I'm going to accomplish that, I need to enlist people. I mean, Elon Musk is such a great example. Yes, he's a billionaire, but he doesn't ever talk about the myopics of the business. He's, he's daring us to dream and imagine a world that we don't yet live in. And that's the foundation of emotional buying, which is foundational to having a cult brand versus just a company. So, so if we're kind of unpacking that there, uh, from a GoPro or a Harley Davidson standpoint, it's not that they didn't, those brands didn't start. How do I sell a million cameras in the next 12 months? Or how do I sell the most expensive motorcycle in the market and, and increase my revenue by 15% a year? It started with, this is who I am. This is what I love. And these are the products and the people that I want to be around and provide something better to. And, and because they were bought in from that passion and involvement standpoint, that's how the brand continues to grow and to develop uh, to that specific customer, I'm guessing. So I'll give you my unbaked hypothesis on entrepreneurship. <laughs> Love it. Because again, I'm, I'm only into this 10 years. Right? I think so all I'm good not... bait start with like unbait, right? Yeah. <laughs> You're putting it into the oven right now, man. It's like, all right, my it. defenses are down. Come sell to me. Your listeners can, can correct me. <laughs> That's right. In my experience, there are only two super successful entrepreneur archetypes. The first one is the unemployable. <laughs> the person who hated school, is unmanageable, can't picture a boss, would be completely miserable to work as an employee. So out of necessity, they said, well, I've got to earn a livelihood. I hate everything about what society has told me are my options. So I'm going to have to build my own thing that caters to my own lifestyle needs and, and the, you know, quirks. Or somebody who is so... Um, disenfranchised with the status quo of a particular aspect of life. And they're so pissed off that nobody has fixed it 
out of a sense of righteous indignation, they're like, I'm going to go fine. If nobody else is going to solve that problem, I'm going to solve it because I can't imagine a world where this problem continues to exist. Right. And so when you have that sort of founder, it's why businesses sometimes falter when the founder finally retires. It's because the, the executives they build around them are not as disenfranchised as they were. But so for us, we were so disenfranchised with the way that clients were being advised to spend their discretionary marketing dollars. We were looking, we were begging. There's got to be a better way than this because this isn't how the most cult-like brands in the world are doing it. Who's helping them? And they, they didn't have options. They had to figure it out themselves. So we said, okay, fine. We'll pick up that mantle and we'll go and do it. Like when you talk about um, the origin story of GoPro, I mean, imagine GoPro. This was a time when camera sales were plummeting because everybody was getting a camera on their phone. It was like the worst possible industry to go to an investor and say, you know what, give me a million dollars. I'm going to make a new camera. Like, what are you talking about? Kodak and all the Nikon, all the camera sales were in double digit states of free fall. And yet he said, nobody is experiencing what it's like to be inside the barrel of a wave. Like, I don't want a picture of the surfer on the wave. I want a video of the surfer in the wave. And I found a way to do that. And so GoPro was as much about capturing moments. In fact, when it launched, it's kind of like the iPod was cool, but you needed the Apple Music Store to make it remarkable. GoPro was cool, but you needed social media at the same time to have the, here's where you share these videos. And he didn't have to buy advertising. People just had to say, holy crap, where did you get that video? Like I have, you know, he put videos on the backs of birds and they flew through the park and he put videos on toddlers, you know, crashing in their big wheels. Like he just produced the content that was the outcome of you can do this with a GoPro. And the world just was like, I want one of those. Those are cool, right? And so, yeah, I do believe that the, a lot of the, or, the woman we just learned, the woman that did Barbie, every other doll when Barbie was created was a baby. And so every girl was being taught that you need to be a mom. And she said, I want my daughter, Barbie, to grow up to have, to be an astronaut or to be a senator or to be, but what's her role play? What's she going to play with? And so she invented a full Full figured for sure, but a uh, you know an aged <laughs> woman to be able to um, imagine this twenty something, which and that's where Barbie the doll was cute, but it was the outfits. There was like two hundred outfits where she could be a banker, she could be an accountant, she could be a waitress, she could be whatever, and that's what changed the generation of women into thinking I could do more. It was what they did as a four year old with their dollhouse, right? So anyway, I, I really think entrepreneurs. If you're just unmanageable, like if you're just trying to find a better way to pay your bills because you're unemployable, you're likely not as prone to build a cult brand as like say the founder of Patagonia, which says like, I've got to protect the, the, the natural places of earth that are being destroyed and I'm going to use a vehicle, you know, a, a, an apparel company as a vehicle to do that. Those brands tend to uh, be propelled much faster. All right, Chris. To simplify here, my business partner here is an accountant. <laughs> so I don't know if his mom bought him the Barbie accountant. We were so passionate about not paying taxes in my house. I just knew that was my life calling. You guys probably had like the knockoff Dollar General version of Barbie. It was probably like Barbara. I got calculated for yeah, Christmas, Barbara man. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> 
Oh, that mechanical pencil was probably a great thing that for you a, too, right? That was awesome. Are there like a certain amount of step to get to make it a number here for Chad? When we're yeah, I need, at, I need a task. I need how to build a brand. I need a one, yeah. two, three. He's yes, going to want to put this, how to cultivate a cult brand culture into a spreadsheet later. <laughs> so I don't, is there five steps here that, that we would go through? Could, how many yeah. steps are it? And how much time does it, does the average company take to build? And I know it's 10 customers or a hundred customers, but to, to start a process of going down the path of building a cult brand and, and building something that your customers really buy into. Yeah. Wh- what does that look like? Give us the steps. Uh, man. What's and, it like? and how long is the expectation? Cause this is so foreign to us in, in our service industry world. It's hard to even grasp. I, I, I would, um, I, I usually hate to try to compare, um, if you're going to do the traditional way, it's fast, you know, not, not traditional way to build a corporate. If you want sure. to just overinvest in paid media and markdowns, you're going to get to a certain degree of success faster. Um, I do think that those are artificial stimulants that can uh, spur growth. Um, but it's almost like planting a tree with very shallow roots. It's also faster to fail. Um, so I guess I would concede that there is something very organic about a cult brand, which is why more cult brands are privately held companies than publicly traded companies, because Wall Street doesn't have patience for naturally occurring things. You look at like Burt's Bees and your guys' neck of the woods, certainly Chick-fil-A or a Waffle House or these types of, of organizations. They, it, there's a lot of natural, normal, organic growth to it. It wasn't like Chick-fil-A's or even Home Depot. When I worked at Home Depot in 2000, 2000, 2004, they were building almost one store a day. Like it was just in hyper growth mode, but that wasn't how they started. They didn't go to the investment community. They gave me billions of dollars to build 2000 Home Depot stores. It existed for decades as a small, you know, Georgia based company. And then when it, when it scaled, it then scaled quickly. So it's kind of like, whatever it was, you know, zero to 10 stores was probably 15 years, but then 10 to 500 stores was four years. So, you know, when you hit that tipping point is not, is rarely at the beginning of the journey. Um, but, you know, Josh, to your point about the, um, the, the, the steps, first and foremost, again, it comes on, do you desire it? And I mean, like really desire it. I like to use the metaphor of everybody says, I wish that I could, um, you know, uh, lose 10 pounds. But the reality is over half of Americans are walking around obese. So they say it, but they don't really desire it because how to do it's not that hard. It's simple to understand how to lose weight. It's just damn, it's not easy. It's just hard because, there's you know, there's Krispy Kreme and people don't understand <laughs> correlation. So, I, you know, how the first is make a commitment. Like, are you, what are you building? You know, again, are you building a, an income vehicle? Are you building a legacy, something in between? What do you, you know, even if you're doing commercial building cleaning, like I would argue, yeah, probably most whoever hires you, COOs or procurement ops aren't going to be like, my cleaning company changed my life. Um, but, you know, we work was just office space and they achieved cult-like status. Um, there's a lot of companies that I think sell themselves short. And even if you don't achieve cult-like status, you can be far more happier and get there a lot more successfully by applying the principles, which is step number two. So step number one is be honest. What are you trying to do? And are you trying to have a, you know, I like to say, um, are you trying to be successful or are you trying to be significant? 
because uh, you can be successful without being significant. It's hard to be significant without being successful. So I think of it as significance is success plus something else. And then there's and then there's these eight cult brand principles. So that's what that's what we spend our time consulting people. There's eight specific things that we have seen cult brands do and spend their money and their time thinking about that mediocre brands don't do. And I think one of the things you guys wanted to talk about here today was one of those eight things is building their brand from the inside out, which deals with their culture management and the role of internal engagement in the business strategy. Because way too many business leaders think of employees as commodities. They think of employees as necessary evil. Well, if I'm going to grow, I've got to hire 10 more people. They don't think of their employees as their competitive advantage. And that's the difference. So if you're a cult brand leader, you're going to say the way I treat my employees and the culture that I create is going to become a differentiator that makes us more successful. And that's why, you know, Uber took off more than Lyft. It's why Airbnb kind of that was a seemingly overnight success story. When Peter Thiel handed them a billion dollars, the one thing he says is don't F up the culture. The most special thing about you is not your website. It's not your property listings. It's not your business model. It's this team that you have nurtured and your ability to scale that from four people to 40 people to 400 people to 4,000 people. That's Airbnb's secret sauce. And what's amazing to me is you look at how they spend their money. You look at how, and Starbucks would be the same way. You look at when Howard Schultz, here's a little anecdote to give you an example. When Howard Schultz got out, when he left Starbucks after he made them Starbucks, it started to decline. And the new leaders started making some stupid mistakes and they killed the culture that he had created in the, in the spirit of preserving the bottom line. And much like what happened to Apple when they ousted Steve Jobs, the business started to decline. So they beg Howard to come back and they start to say, okay, what's this genius gonna do? What's his magic? And at the time, Hurricane Katrina had just wiped out New Orleans. And Howard said, let's take 3,000 store managers and fly them to New Orleans for a week to help with the recovery. And the board and the executives like, what are you talking about? That's tens of millions of dollars to fly 3,000 employees down to, he says, if I'm the boss, I'm the boss, my way or the highway. And they said, fine. And he spent a week, that was his business meeting. That was his coming back strategy. Not let's sit down and look at PowerPoints and spreadsheets, sorry, Chad, but it's (laughs) let's go work together and remind ourselves of the humanity that we're trying to create within this company. And they, yeah, they wrapped up with the business meeting, but it was this amazing example. Airbnb was the same way. When I met their CMO, he didn't talk about marketing. He didn't, in, in the traditional sense of the word. He talked about what he does to to create camaraderie amongst the hosts and how does he help the hosts be more successful. And he spent more time on internal audiences. And that's so unique. Most mediocre businesses say marketing's job is external, HR's job is internal, not cult brands. Cult brands say HR is not very good at creating engagement. HR is good at avoiding lawsuits. HR is good at creating pay bans and policies, but HR is not in the business of persuasion and influence. Marketing is in the business of persuasion. And so marketing spends more time on culture issues inside cult brands. And there's a high correlation of brands like Forbes and Fortune always kind of vote as great places to work. You look at their playbooks of 
what did they do to earn Google, Facebook, I always kind of use these examples uh, to earn that sort of uh, reputation and it's marketing tactics. It's their communication strategy. It's their, um, some of their policies. It's not the perks. It's not the pool tables and the, you know, the free beer in the fridge. Those don't hurt, but that's not how you build an amazing cult brand culture. It's treating your employees as a valued audience that you, do, that you invest a disproportionate amount of energy into how you recruit them, how you onboard them, how you retain them, how you reward them. And if that means you have less money for a Super Bowl commercial, so be it. Because that's going to be more impactful for your business than a Super Bowl ad. Wow. That, listening to that, I've never heard it put from that perspective or in those terms. And listening to it now, it seems so foreign to me when we started this conversation. Now it seems a complete common sense business approach or structure of how could your customers ever become extremely passionate and in love with your business if your employees and your team aren't passionate or in love with your business and their job. And it, it, it's all got to start there. You, you can't fake that. And so hearing it, uh, it in the way you presented that, just a light bulb started going off in my head of how important that is. And then I know for me, I, I'm as guilty as anybody of this. Business is growing. I don't, I'm really good at one piece of my business, but I don't know anything about managing people and my business is growing fast and we're, we're good at serving the customer, but now all of a sudden we're growing faster than we can keep up and we just don't do a great job of taking care of our team or focusing on that internal HR communication marketing piece. It's, it's all putting out fires and managing the growth. And it, it really gets to a point where you're like, man, we, we got to step back and build this foundation and do it a little different. And, and all of that is, is bouncing around in my head as we talk about these things. Yeah, absolutely. Chris is kind of landing the plane for this episode. I would love to know. So we've get, get, have some of the philosophy out of like what we should be focused on. And you have some examples from you know, a big brand like Starbucks as to what they did to enhance their culture. I would love to know how you and your business partner are cultivating a, a cult brand culture at cult collective like what are some of the things that you guys have done because you're teaching this i know you're doing it so what have y'all done uh to live out your product within your company listen just like if you want to have a cult brand the first and foremost thing you have to do is to say what's my desire um i i'm kind of like you chad like like i'm not a naturally good people manager that's not one of my strengths um but I do aspire to have a company that I want to go to every day. Yes, I do aspire absolutely. to have Monday be my favorite day of the week, not Friday. Um, and so we were very intentional about um, having a stated ambition that we don't want employees, we want evangelists. And so that requires a twofer. The first is, are you competent at your job? Like, I need you to be excellent at, at, at your craft or your skill. But that doesn't get you a job at cult. It's, I also need to be convinced that you share my disdain of the status quo, that you're, that you're willing to vocally advocate and champion on our behalf, that you're willing to pick a fight if need be, we're not trying to be politically correct. We're trying to create change. And so that requires some contention and some controversy. You know, we're not uh, just following uh, the flow there. And so we, we spend a lot of energy in the hiring process, like 
I remember one time having a candidate that was trying to negotiate a, a higher salary and made the mistake of saying, well, I got to be honest, at the same time I was interviewing with you, I was interviewing with this other agency and they offered me whatever, 10 or 20 grand more. And I wasn't offended about him asking for more money. I was offended saying, how did you get this far in the screening process that if you would ever even consider working for that agency, you would never want to come here? Like that is our polar opposite, right? It's like, if you're a Ford guy, you just don't drive a Chevy. Right, so if you're a cult person, you just you would never work at an ad agency because it's the opposite of what we are advocating for. So that's where it was like you're really just looking for a job. You're really just looking for a paycheck. Which great, go find a job. But I'm too small to have employees. I need evangelists because I need a two for the price of one. I need an employee who does the job and somebody that would enjoy being on a podcast over lunch break or writing a blog on the weekend because. You know, wants to read about cult brands uh, on their on their vacation, not because I'm a taskmaster making, but because that's their passion. That's what they want to spend their time uh, doing. It reminded me of when I went to Hot Wheels. Like the people that work at Hot Wheels are freaks for cars. I almost felt bad. I'm like, do they know they're building toys? Because <laughs> they 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 behave and act like they're building <laughs> automobiles, and they're just they go to car shows on the weekends and they just love cars, and it's like. Yeah, that's what you want in terms of kind of grooming that sort of an employee. Uh, the other thing that we had as a, as a hack was we're always hiring, even if we're not hiring, because we worked with Zappos. And I think Zappos is a great example of like, imagine being Zappos. You have no competitive advantage. You don't have a store. You don't have employees that people can interact with, try stuff on. You don't really spend a lot of money on advertising. You don't ever go on sale. And every single, you don't have anything proprietary. You know, those Nike sneakers are the same sneakers that you can get at Foot Locker. And yet, they're not only a cult brand, but every year they hire 200 call center positions and get 20,000 applications for those positions. And when I say applications, what I really mean is like American Idol audition tapes. Like these are not people sending in their resume. They're sending in love letters, poems, songs, magic tricks, you know, they've named their dogs, their kids Zappos. Like it's, it's people saying, pick me because I love you more than anybody else. And I was like, how did they get to that level of fandom? And so I always like to tell people, measure your cult-like status by the number of unsolicited resumes that you get into the business. Who's lining up begging to work uh, for your organization? And they build that employer brand because, again, you get a twofer. Everybody will see it, and so they'll know that you know Zappos is hiring, and therefore they'll they'll know more about Zappos. But like, make it obvious that like, you know, we're, we're the Marines, we're the best of the best, uh, we're NASA, we're whatever. Like, in order to get a job here, whether you're Chobani or Budweiser or Porsche, you pick your kind of beloved brand. It's got to be people to say, "Wow!" Like the top MBA schools, the top professionals are all begging. They take pay cuts to go work for that company. What is it that that company's doing? And that will engender. I, I also like to think of employees as just your most loyal customers. They're so loyal. They don't just want to buy your stuff. They want to work for you 40 hours a week. And so if you start thinking of it that way, you start to manage them a bit differently. 
Man, this this has helped me tremendously as a business owner. Um, as Josh said, we own a cleaning company together, but I also own and a partner in a tax and accounting firm. And and I'm struggling with a lot of those uh, things we've talked about of building a culture and controlling growth. And we're awesome at what we do, but we're also a bunch of accountants and, and task-oriented people that are serving customers and are too busy doing it. But it, it just hit me like, if I've just using numbers, if I'm right now, I've, we've really got more customers than we can serve, but we're still marketing. I'm still spending 2,500 bucks a month on marketing, which is crazy. And I'm not spending any dollars internally uh, to grow or build my team or change that culture or, or something like that. It seems common sense now. Hey, let me, for the rest of this year, let me get rid of my marketing budget. And let me spend $2,500 a month internally on my team and let's start putting our money where our mouth's at and growing the culture and the internal cult following that we want. Yeah, and, and, a, and a more engaged team can result not in new customer acquisition as much as organic growth, yeah. growing existing accounts and finding revenue within the people that are already buying some of your services, but not all of your services. And as you said too, man, when, when people work for a place that they're evangelist of, they're just, they love what they're doing, they love who they're doing it for, that's the best way to attract, like Zappos example. Like they they attract more people that want to work there because the people that work there love it so much. So Chris, you've done something that I always love when this happens. You've left us all like wanting more of the yes. conversation <laughs> to continue to go, and we don't have time for it. There's like seven other principles I you're need a, to know, man. You're a busy guy. You got stuff to do. Uh, we want to honor your time, but can you? Tell, tell our audience where they can find you if they want to find more information on Chris Nealon, on Cult Collective. Where do they go? Yeah, just go to cultideas.com. There's lots of free content to download. Um, there's a cool scorecard that you can take there. So you can fill out some questions and it will evaluate sort of your cult capableness, how, how cult worthy could you become. Um, and that will allow you to kind of maybe identify a few places to start. We do monthly classes where people can sign up to produce a day-long workshop. As I mentioned, we do our annual event. It just wrapped up this year. So we're now 11 months away from the next one. But a 1,000 people come to Canada and learn from the most cult-like brands in the world. We're, we're quite passionate about opening people's eyes to there's a better way to have a more rewarding more successful business that isn't just buy more Google keywords or, you know, find some social media influencer, all this garbage that people are filling your heads with. Those are empty calories and they're the wrong prescription. So check out cultideas.com and there'll be lots of ways to get connected for little to no money. So awesome, Chris. Even as he's talking, he's like dropping this like little marketing. I'm like scorecard. Yes. Oh, write that oh no, look at this little word. I need to build something like that. Like, it's so amazing. Awesome. Yeah. Chris, thanks so much for your time, man. We appreciate you. Yeah. Thank you guys. It was great. Thanks, man. All right. Take care. If you're a fan of the Entrepreneur Adventure podcast, we would love to hear about it. You can leave us a review right here on your favorite podcast app. You can subscribe to the podcast or you can find us on Instagram at the Entrepreneur Adventure. Until next time, thank you for joining us.